0: Listening to Small Talks and City Blocks, a podcast production of Women in Cities International. I'm Hannah McCasland. I'm Bethy Monsion, And I'm Maxine
1: Dannett. We host conversations about gendered experiences of city life and the work being done to promote inclusive and equitable cities and communities for all. In this episode, we decided to speak
2: with two architectural historians to get their perspective on how gender has shaped
0: built space and the field of architecture throughout history. We spoke with Dr. Anne-Marie Adams, Professor and Stevenson Chair in the History and Philosophy of Science, including Medicine, at McGill University, in conversation with Ipek Torelli, Assistant Professor and Canada Research Chair in Architectures of Spatial Justice at McGill University.
1: That's a mouthful. We talked with them about how buildings can be sites of control, communicating to people how they should behave, and segregating people along the lines of gender, race,
2: and class. They brought up how the field of architecture is dominated by the idea of a lone, usually male genius, ignoring female architects who promote the work of the collective over that of the individual.
1: here, talking to Anne Marie Adams and Ipek Torelli, who are both architect professors at McGill University. Um, I consider you both to be kind of socially engaged architects, um, just in the way that you address certain social inequities in your work. Um, Anne Marie, I, I really like the way that your work explores the way in which gender kind of manifests itself in the built environment, and then Ipek your work in social justice architecture kind of talks about the way that these inequalities can be addressed through the profession in architecture. Um, And I was wondering whether, just to start off, you could kind of just tell us a bit about your work, whether it relates to social justice or not, um, and kind of the approach that you take to architecture. Okay, so I'll go first. Yeah. Thank you very much.
3: (laughs) That's a nice summary of my work. Um, I'm an architectural historian, so I deal mostly with buildings of the past and IPEC and I were actually uh, educated at the same university at UC Berkeley in the same place and I think I hope you don't mind me saying this Epec. I think it's really shaped our um, awareness of the power of architecture for uh, social justice and I'm a generation ahead of Epec, so um, it's very heartening for me to see that that the strength of UC Berkeley is still going so strong, producing architects and architectural historians that still care about the world in this way. So, in my generation, cha- uh, trained in the 1980s and 1990s, it was um, it was quite novel to study anything to do with w- women in architecture. And many of my colleagues and professors were studying women architects, kind of shining a light on women architects. And I was never very interested in doing that, although I still feel the pressure to do that. But my real love uh, in my research has been to look at the way gendered expectations are embedded in architectural design. And I have come to believe that buildings are very bossy places, very bossy tools, and that they are particularly bossy for women and children. They, um, they demand, I think, certain behaviors, and they're very, many buildings are unforgiving when those expectations are unmet. So what I have tried to do for 30 years is to look at the kind of intentions that are, that are designed into buildings, mostly houses and hospitals. And then to look at the way real women and children have resisted those intentions. And it's very very hard to get at to find sources that show that resistance. And that's what what still keeps me up at night. That's what still keeps me going. I'm very very interested in in finding those. Um, And so I haven't um, like like Epec and her generation worked at very much at how to fix those things, except that I've tried to educate a generation of architects to be aware of that and to design buildings that are more um, open and equitable and and uh, porous, I would say.
4: Well, thank you for your interest in our work. And uh, I'm really honored to be working in the same um, unit as uh, Professor Adams. Um, When I was studying at UC Berkeley um, in the 2000s, um, myself and my colleagues, we looked at power struggles in the city, which always has a gender dimension, but it wasn't explicit in my work. And my PhD-based work and publications afterwards focused on the visual culture of cities. I I, uh, started teaching about histories of social engagement in the profession and advocacy in the discipline because there's a lot of interest in the past uh, decade in socially engaged architecture. Catalogues and exhibitions are coming one after the other. Uh, And they are presenting old ideas as new inventions. It's as if uh, we are constantly reinventing the wheel. uh, But architectural history is very important. to, to the profession and discipline of architecture like in no other profession. We feed from our architectural history. And if we keep on teaching Corbusier, we will never learn about how in the past architects have tried to engage social political issues. Mm. So that's what I've, I've uh, defined, my, uh, defined as a task duty for myself. Uh, and that's the basis uh, really of my research program as Ca- Canada Research chair uh, in architectures of spatial justice. So I am studying and teaching about the history of how architects have engaged social political issues, um, and uh, this is how um, I have um, also started looking at gender issues. While it wasn't um, in any way central to my work before. It's a very specific, <laughs> specific um, response to McGill's curriculum. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe, uh, Professor Adams, you could talk a bit about the way that you see gender manifesting in kind of historical buildings.
3: So one of the things I've tried to do in my work is to um, look at what I call public domesticity. So I guess that's probably the most urban of my work where um, I like to call it Big House Syndrome, and it is this idea that all buildings and spaces designed for women look like houses. And I challenge any of you to find a building before 1980 for women that doesn't have a pitched roof. It's really astonishing. So uh, I think it's one of the way ways that these subconscious expectations for women are built into the city is that um, buildings where women are welcomed, or destination buildings for women, have to look protective, and safe, and middle class, and all of those things. And we think of the natural environment for middle class women as the home, even though we've long lost that connection. So for example, on the McGill campus, the only brick building is the School of Nursing. And it is, um, it has its front door, on a university street. Its back door faces the campus. Mm-hmm. And it looks like a chateau or a castle. In fact, the School of Nursing has now left it, so it maybe is unfair to, to say this, but it's only been about three months since it left it. It has, it has, um, it is an overtly domestic public building. So we see that display in, um, well, Also in my hospital work and where nurses live in the hospital, where um, early women university students were expected to live. RBC looks like a big castle. Mm -hmm. Um, It's across North America, Uh, not so much in Europe. The Museum for Women's Art, in fact, in Washington, looks like a big house. It's really an astonishing thing. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that that uh, the male-dominated profession of architecture projects on women without even being aware. So for about 20 years I studied uh, women in buildings and in the last 10 years I've turned my attention to looking at um, men and masculinity and how that is expressed in architecture because I think it has It's not been studied, and I think it's an important part of the dynamic, gender dynamics. So uh, I, I studied an iconic mid-century modern house in Berkeley from a queer perspective. That was my first publication on men. And then I took on two of Montreal's iconic men's clubs, the University Club and the Mount Royal Club, trying to show that how... The architects of the building had to include—this is what I argue—had to include minimal spaces for women to be visible in order to reinforce the power of men. Um, and I use the new work on race very much as an inspiration. That in order for um, in order to for white power to exist. Non whites had to be visible in the city. It doesn't, and that's exactly the way the gender dynamic works. So I looked at the ways women were forced to enter and circulate through the two clubs, um, which didn't accept women until the 1980s. And of course, they have their own sort of public domesticity that I think um, served to suggest that men needed a home outside the home, like the English pub, a kind of extension of the domestic realm where they could be in charge um, because of the concerns about the feminization of the home mm-hmm. in the early 20th century.
4: Well, this kind of close reading of individual buildings is so important, and uh, I feel uh, students who haven't taken Professor Adams's courses um, uh are not equipped at all. In one of my courses, I asked uh-huh. uh, students to write uh, uh, analysis of buildings on campus, and they just brought um, eschopedic information. Yes. You know, it was built in, the a, mm-hmm. in 1873 by blah, blah. And uh, I was like, you know, how about analyzing the building? And it's so difficult, you would think, for architecture students. Mm -hmm. uh, But these are very important uh, analytical skills, thinking skills. Uh, They need to learn to be able to apply, to be able to design consciously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. you enter a building, uh, how many steps there are? What's the size of the uh, door? What's your relationship to it? Mm -hmm. What happens the sequence? That you experience these are so important mm-hmm. um, I mean we and uh, what does it mean what does what kind of effect does it have on us and
3: uh, we should say a little bit about how you read social class in buildings, and yes. that's a great yeah. um, uh, way to illustrate it, fact that I think you could count the number of filters between the street and the inside of the building mm-hmm. as a marker of social class, at least mm. in domestic architecture. So a grand mansion like this one, that used to be the J.K.L. Ross house, um, has many, many layers. You know, the the hedge, the driveway, the stairs, two uh, doors for the vestibule, and then that big, big entryway. Very few people would move beyond that. Whereas if you're in Point St. Charles and you enter a house, that house, first of all, there's no there's no there's no uh, access of entry like we have here you go right from the sidewalk to there the might be two room. steps <laughs> into the heart of the house yes exactly and so that's it's always been there it's not just a question of the amount of space you have it's uh it's that a building like this ennobles you as you enter it. Mm -hmm. Just even the idea of the Piano Nobile, of raising the the ground floor a little bit off, you know, it's a tenet of classical architecture. It makes everybody feel important. Look at the Arts Building. The whole campus is about that entry to the Arts Building. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think people really notice it, uh, but it's how we read social class definitely. And of course the square mile district of Montreal that we're sitting in, later called the Golden Square Mile, was all about that expression of separation and privilege. Mm -hmm. And McGill is fortunate to own all these mansions, but they don't always fit as public buildings.
4: So buildings communicate people where they stand, how they should behave, Mm -hmm. and uh, if we expand to the um, to the city, to urban spaces, uh, they continue doing that. And uh, you said your organization is looking at public transport. For instance, Montreal's public transportation is a bit notorious. It's stuck in the sixties, mm-hmm. uh, especially the metro. It's not very welcoming for handicapped people, people with strollers. Um, as a mother, um, I experience this on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, So these are the ways some populations are deterred uh, from being out in public spaces. Mm -hmm. And uh, it continues into the public realm. Spaces are predominantly designed by male or um, from man's perspectives. And this was the critique of second wave feminism in architecture. Uh, So, you know, uh, having a, for instance, separate kitchen from the dining area in, a, in an economy, domestic economy, where the woman are, um, prepares of the food, what does that do? It turns the woman into a servant almost in her own house and separates her. Uh, but you can generalize it to the urban realm as well. Uh, what I want to say, uh, man, uh, and this was a critique of second wave feminism again. Uh, because men have controlled uh, the design of the built environment, um, women had to find alternative roles for themselves. And historically, when you look at design professions, uh, perhaps the most distinct one was landscape design, then industrial design, housing design. These were areas pioneered by women as specialities. And then once they became successful, they were taken over over by men. <laughs> so this is quite interesting that women pioneered new areas outside the established domain of architecture, you know, the indiv- design of individual buildings, and then they get taken over by men. And women have also pioneered alternative models of working, collaborative horizontal mm-hmm. models. And uh, the paper you read is an example of that. Especially uh, the paper you read was looking at a group of women who formed an alternative school um, to get together uh, in, in in North America, um, an alternative school uh, where they taught each other how to survive they taught each other alternative skills from carpentry to fi- uh, you know housing finance. Um, you know cur- curriculum that they could not find in conventional schools mm-hmm. curriculum that would empower themselves and um, and we still have offices uh, like uh, MAF we brought here for a lecture uh, based in London they, uh, they begin typically their projects with a deep study of uh, the social fabric so they do interviews, they do participant observation, and uh, they come up with projects that are neither art, neither architecture just in between. That's why math art slash architecture. And uh, they really um, involve the community. Uh, they, they allow them to participate in the creation of memories. So they don't necessarily ask people to do bricks in the conventional sa- sense of social engagement. One, one of their parks, they do, um, they do an analysis of the social pa- fabric, and they understand that um, there's a Bangladesh immigrant community. So they uh, part of the park. They do um, uh, a replica of the language mar- martyrs monument from Bangladesh, and they uh, ask the Bangladeshi community to participate in the making of it. But in another part of the same park, they do an excavation, an archaeological dig, which is performative. It's you know, it's an old Roman site, but everywhere, you know, you dig, you can find <laughs> Roman <laughs> artifacts. And then they do this dig, um, symbolic dig, and then they this with the community and then they display outside the dig the results, some artifacts, maybe Roman and stones, cigarette butts, they display everything. So it's performative. Um, the um, the community participates participate in its making and to, they create memories in the making of the park uh, and those memories remain with the space and all the different parts of the community feel welcome. So this is a very uh, different kind of practice. Not only is the practice horizontal, but the way they impose on the site is not like we draw something on the table and it's built on site. Right? It's not a mapping of what they imagine on the table. It actually happens through the building, Mm -hmm. building of the project. So it's mm-hmm. more than what it looks like on the plan, because there's so much happening through the making of the project.
1: Do you think there's a? Um, you kind of talked about the idea of the like genius architect. Is that something that's like very prevalent in um, the architectural field? And yes, yes. okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: Even though all buildings are designed by very complex teams, it's very common for the you know famous principal of the firm to be associated with the building. Mm-hmm. The people like Frank Gehry and Zaha Hadid, and it's not just men, but it's usually men. But maybe we, as a follow-up to talking about Muff, we could just say that there is a uh, Montreal architectural firm that's kind of based on them, roughly on the Muff model, called Architem, and it has all women principals, and. Um, has a kind of horizontal model. Mm-hmm. So when they were, I think there were three women principals, quite young, when they founded the firm, they all had babies, and they brought the kids to work. And so it was a very you know, famously kind of chaotic and kid-friendly office. And I think it's still like that.
4: Mm-hmm. And they were influenced in turn by previous groups such as Matrix, mm-hmm. which worked oh, with immigrant communities. Um, so uh, there are groups who have pioneered new methods of working, both in terms of their office organization and in terms of how they engage their constituents mm-hmm. and whom they represent. Um, and we need to, I guess, um, I feel we need to um, write about their histories more so than the individual uh, quote-unquote genius woman architects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To set an example um, for future practice. So the, the and we have to uh, remember Linda Nochlin, uh, who mm-hmm. passed away recently, the uh, famous feminist art historian, who um, told us, uh, who made us realize for the first time uh, that genius, the talk of genius, is it, patriarchy in action, <laughs> and it's still prevalent. Um, in architecture schools. everybody's looking for genius um, mm-hmm. designers. <laughs> Even the way
3: the thesis, design thesis projects are organized is really around a student feeling like uh, he or she c- will control every aspect of a project. Mm. Students, architecture students are very fond of team projects and we we're trying to we certainly have more now than we had in the past but there still is that idea that um, you will be released out in the world and and design great monuments and your name will be associated with them, which is completely false. It happens
1: to very few architects. What has your experience been like in the architectural field itself? Maybe do you have any experiences that made you very aware of your gender as an architect? Almost every experience I've ever had in
3: architecture (laughs) has made me feel that way.
1: Do you think there are ways to design spaces that would prevent sexual harassment? A big <laughs> like in what way could, uh, say, like an office space or a university space be designed differently that would kind of help prevent these things? And is that possible?
4: Hmm. There's a researcher called space syntax. I'm not a proponent of it necessarily, but... Um, It has... uh, Bill Hillier was its inventor at the Bartlett. And
3: Hansen. Hillier and Hansen. Yes. a woman. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, I forget her first name, though. uh,
4: So the basic idea was... uh, It's crime prevention. Uh, So, I mean, I'm going to (coughs) reduce it because I haven't studied it, but instead of crooked... Uh, pathways, if you do a straight pathway, if you increase visibility, there will be less crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there has been a whole research field. Uh, I think University of Michigan in the United States mm-hmm. is strong um, and it's been applied to studies of museums and other public institutions. Uh, if you, I mean if you kind of go with that uh, research paradigm and if sexual harassment, uh, is a subset of violence, uh, there could be an interpolation that visibility may um, uh, may lessen any type of violence. However, uh, the solution is more social, uh, in mm-hmm. my understanding. Mm-hmm. It's not in the design uh, of spaces. No, I don't think it's that place-related.
3: Although I did do a study with Shelley Hornstein of the um, Christian Brothers Orphanage in St. John's, where all the um, abuse of young boys by priests took place, and we got them to mark on floor plans where it took place, and it was always around the dark corner, in the shadow, in the shower. You know, it wasn't on the stair landing. Mm-hmm. So. You know, anecdotal evidence like that suggests that the abuse of children is often in invisible places in mm-hmm. institutions but we can't have open plan everything and mm-hmm. open plans have other problems and that mm-hmm. people feel they're being watched and surveyed and never get to they can't focus as well because of that
4: yes. so mm-hmm. that's more forensic architecture right yes. uh, to using architecture to understand how, and architectural evidence to understand where cramp
1: uh, takes mm-hmm. place. Yeah. Maybe to wrap up, we can talk a bit about the architectural Barbie. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
4: that I
1: love. Um, do you know when it came out, and have you ever given someone an architectural Barbie? Oh,
3: yes. It came out in 2011, and I mm-hmm. bought quite a few of them. I was okay. director of the School of Architecture then, mm-hmm. and I thought it was. Um, Well, it's funny. I I thought it was a perfect gift for several very specific types of people. (laughs) One was visiting feminist scholars, uh, because I had been given it, so I thought it was amazing. Um, But also, I gave it to a few graduating students, and um, some people think it's a really great thing, because Mattel picks a different profession every year and they're moving in alphabetical order so it was astronaut and architect the same year which was a very good pairing for uh, (laughs) for architecture um but of course there's been a lot of critique about the design of architect barbie that first of all the fact that she has blueprints in her in her uh storage bin architects haven't used blueprints since (laughs) the 1950s maybe is that right pet anyway a long yes, time but ago but the
4: woman didn't have um, um, this figure since the 50s either right. <laughs> she
3: goes with that with that Marilyn Monroe yes. uh, look also um, very few women architects would dress like that and of course she's the main thing is, is that she seems to be designing a pink house. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's interesting. So I, it's one of, as Epek mentioned, there are subfields in architecture that have been associated with women architects. They Gwendolyn Wright called them ghettos. Three main ghettos for women architects, and in our, in my and Peter Tancred's work on Canadian women architects, interestingly, we found that Quebec architects did not follow that model, but the English can in English Canada and in the U.S., and in England and Australia, that model, that um, specialization is very, very clear for early women architects, that they were forced into historic preservation, housing and interiors. So Mm -hmm. all, especially historic preservation and interiors, uh, those are are subfields of architecture where you are complementing or finishing the work of men or taking care of buildings that are already constructed. So people have compared it to, you know, being a secretary or being a nurse, uh, being a kind of helper of the designers. Mm-hmm. So I think architect Barbie is is uh, designed to look like that kind of architect. And of course she has a pink <laughs> uh, tube too and architects in 2011 would rarely carry their drawings. So it's really mixed with uh, historic and contemporary images of women architects. And as I mentioned, the dark-skinned one was half price on Amazon, half price. So there is a huge wage discrepancy for uh, women architects of visible minorities. You should maybe get this fact from... I saw it on Twitter that there are more men named... I forget what it was, like Victor or something, than there are um, African-American women architects. Wow. It was a name that you wouldn't think of. (laughs) I can find it for
0: you. So it wasn't just like the name John or something? No. (laughs) But even then, still... So that's it, it.
3: we should have another meeting just about that.
0: (laughs) To learn more about Anne-Marie Adams and Trelli's work, check out their online McGill faculty pages. Links are in the episode description. You
2: can learn more about Women in Cities International at womenincities.org and find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We want to hear from you. What does your ideal city look like? Let us know on social media and use the hashtag womenincities.
1: Check out writetocampus.com slash alternative resources for a list of helpful resources in Montreal for safety in public space. Our thanks to Anne-Marie
0: and Epec for joining us.
1: This podcast
2: is produced and hosted by Hannah McCasland, Bethie Molcion, and Maxine Dannett.
0: Music is by Coles Weber. This podcast was recorded in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Montreal is located on unceded Indigenous lands.
2: This has been a Women in Cities International production. Thank you for tuning in to Small Talks and City Blocks. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and give us a review.